0: One of the most unusual murder trials in recent Portland history wrapped last week. Nancy Crampton Brophy, the self-published romance novelist, was found guilty of killing her husband. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Up next, breaking news reporter Zane Sparling, who covers Multnomah County Courts for us, talks about the unusual case and the even more remarkable trial. We talked about the crime, the closure for chef Daniel Brophy's family and why it took 4 years to bring this case to justice. Here's our conversation. Zane Sparling, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Can't believe it's taken this long.
0: Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we're talking today about a really high-profile murder trial, and it's kind of unusual because obviously there's this little thing called the pandemic. Walk us through why we're finally having this trial four years later, essentially from the crime and the overall landscape of uh, the legal system.
1: The pandemic really uh, ground the gears of the justice system to a halt. And the reason for that is 90%, if not more, of criminal matters are resolved before they go to trial. But the threat of a trial is always looming over both sides. A trial takes a long time. It's a lot more work than just signing a piece of paper that Mm -hmm. stipulates a punishment, like in a plea deal. And that focuses both sides. It brings both sides to the table. They know they've only got so much time to reach a deal or they go to trial. But during the pandemic, for some pretty understandable reasons... Uh, The presiding judges across the state of Oregon were pretty hesitant to bring a bunch of people into a room Having them all sit there day after day bringing in witnesses bringing in defendants Some of these people might be especially sensitive as well And they there were some instances where they tried to do zoom trials But it was I think universally agreed that that was not a acceptable substitute What happened is there were no murder trials uh, in Oregon in Multnomah County Circuit Court specifically for two years.
0: And I know we were talking earlier, and you kind of alluded to this, but the jury pool itself, obviously, it's a reflection of the community. And people who might be older were more susceptible to COVID, and that that was a factor as well.
1: Yeah, that actually came up specifically in the Nancy Crampton Brophy uh, murder trial because her lawyer's... After getting successfully multiple delays during the pandemic, they asked for another one year setback right before this went to trial in April. And that was their logic. And it, it does make sense that it could skew the jury pool. You want the jury pool to be a reflection of your peers. And you certainly, uh, Crampton Brophy, she's 71. You wouldn't want to have uh, a disproportionately fewer amount of um, you know people who are a little bit older in that jury pool and being chosen and selected for the actual jury. Uh, But the judge in this case thought that it'd been two years, we know how to do this now, we can do this safely, Uh, masks were required in the courtroom uh, for everyone in the courtroom, except if you were on the stand, so if you were actively communicating, you could take your mask off. Mm -hmm. Um, And the trial proceeded this April.
0: By the time people are listening to this, they probably have read the headlines, maybe they've read some of your coverage, but you were there for how many days?
1: Oh, I was in the audience... uh, Not every day because this was, again, it was a 27-day trial spread over uh, seven, eight weeks with a pause there in the middle. But I was there every day last week. I would come in and check in every week. And when I wasn't in the courtroom, I was watching it on YouTube or uh, through another uh, WebEx program that allowed us to, to monitor what was going on.
0: You kind of set the scene a little bit for us that everyone was wearing masks unless they were up on the on the stage.
1: That's right. So this was in Multnomah County Circuit Court, that gleaming new hundred million plus courthouse that was just built a few years ago, uh, right on the water in downtown Portland. Uh, They've still got the barricades up though, so they've got a a great glass um, facade that is, of course, completely walled off because they're worried people will uh, uh, have a protest and shatter the glass. But. You get inside, there are brand new courtrooms of all the modern amenities. For people who remember the old Multnomah County Courthouse, sometimes it was like, where's the outlets? Where's the bathrooms? Oh, the, the guy who's on trial for murder needs to use the bathroom. We'll just have him go down the public hallway and we'll see you in a few minutes. You know, it was not built to modern standards. Uh, in this new uh, courtroom, for instance the defendant, Nancy Crampton Brophy, and and any defendant comes up through a separate elevator, a separate door into the courtroom, completely set off from the public.
0: Now, I think a lot of people probably know a little bit about this story about the actual um, murder, but uh, what just take us through kind of the story that was played out in the courtroom itself. You know, what happened from the prosecution's side? What facts did they lay out about how uh, Daniel Brophy was killed?
1: So according to the narrative uh, set out by prosecutors, Crampton Brophy, she woke up one day, June 2nd, 2018. She drove down to her husband's workplace, the Oregon Culinary Institute in southwest Portland. Uh, She came into the room with him, shot him once Uh, in the back. The bullet severed his spine and, and went through his heart and then shot him again as he lay there dying on the floor. And the reason that Crampton Brophy did this, according to prosecutors, was to collect uh, about $800,000 in life insurance policies. And it, as uh, the prosecutor said, it wasn't just about the money. It was about the lifestyle that Daniel Brophy, Chef Dan Brophy, could no longer provide uh, for his partner. That's the story.
0: That's the story, and uh, this happened, you know, uh, in the morning before students, before you know the the next chefs and sous chefs and people working across our our fine city before they're there, uh, right? Uh, so it was just it was just Dan Brophy at the
1: time. He was working a Saturday shift. This was June second, two thousand eighteen. And he was preparing for something called Live Fire, which is a day where the uh, the students at the school actually simulate working in a kitchen, right? So he's calling out orders. He's, you know, changing things up. Oh, the customer doesn't like the soup. They sent it back, trying to simulate what it would actually be like to work in that very, uh, you know, fast-paced restaurant kitchen environment back of the house. Nancy was expecting Dan to get there really early. He didn't get there as early as she expected. She actually left the house sometime around 6 a.m., uh, we know that Daniel Brophy showed up at 7.22 a.m. because that's when he deactivated the alarm to the Oregon Culinary Institute. And he went into through this roll-up door. He went into a sort of a maze-like labyrinth where you're going down these narrow hallways to get to one of these kitchen classrooms. And Nancy followed him in there. The prosecutors actually think that that he knew she was there because, of course, they've been together 25 years. He would have trusted her. and. She went in before anyone else was there, shot him. She's seen on surveillance both coming to the school and leaving. So she left after about six minutes. She was only there very briefly. And then another student showed up around 7.30. But from where she was, she was just waiting to go inside. She couldn't see anything wrong. A chef came eventually and was working in another part of the classroom. But it wasn't until 8.30 when class was set to begin that a bunch of students all walked into class and saw their instructor. I mean, basically lifeless on the ground. It's it's not clear if he had he had died or not, but mm. um, he was declared dead in the hospital.
0: Did anything new or revelatory come out about just who Dan Brophy was during the trial, or anything that stood out during the testimony?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we use the word beloved a lot when someone has passed, but he had a huge impact on. Portland and Oregon's culinary scene. He had worked at Western Culinary Institute, which became uh, Le Cordon Bleu, and before he went to OCI. All three of those schools are now defunct; they've all closed. Exactly. But he taught, yeah. yeah, he he taught generations of students. He was. Someone who had been quoted in the Oregonian because he was such an expert mushroom hunter in the Willamette National Forest that he would go out there and he sometimes would go out every weekend and he'd go and collect uh, mushrooms that he'd actually use in his food, of course. He would go to the Oregon coast and he'd bring students on day trips and they would sort of all gather around the tide pools and he'd show them how you could take the food that's actually on our coast in nature and create meals with that stuff. And he had a little side business where he would grow uh, herbs and then sell small amounts of them to the students on a, on a little hand card he kept at the school. I mean, he was someone who was really dedicated to uh, like the biological nature of food and and that farm to table or even that wildness to table um mantra we see in in cooking so much these days and moreover than that he was just the kind of guy who loved teaching and he wasn't uh he he told you know he was he was a tough but fair type of instructor he wasn't someone who was there to be your best friend he could sometimes be even a little intimidating but he had this razor sharp incredibly dry sense of humor i mean it at the trial people were wearing shirts with some of his uh, brophyism, some of his little sayings that he would he would say one of them i saw was uh, any any job will take less time if you don't do it so slow so that <laughs> is really his humor
0: that's a nice little nugget there you know that's something that you only see if you're there yeah. in, in the courtroom so nancy crampton brophy obviously um you know by the again she, she We'll get to the verdict and, and whatnot later, but I was sitting in, in the Oregonian newsroom next to our colleague Shane Dixon-Cavanaugh as he mm-hmm. kind of wrote these stories back in, in 2018, but what do we know about her that came up in the trial? What did her uh, defense argue was um, was the reason that she was in, in the neck of the woods uh, uh, at that morning?
1: Yeah, so... As you mentioned, uh, Mr. Kavanaugh, another one of our esteemed colleagues, he was the one who first uncovered that now notorious self-published essay by Nancy Crampton Brophy, How to Murder Your Husband. And of course, on Wednesday, she was convicted of murdering her husband, Daniel Brophy. Right, right. That's something that's been through this case this whole time. We learned a lot more about Nancy. She actually took a very unusual step. She testified in her own defense. So she took the witness stand. She spoke to her attorney for about three hours and then went through a a shocking cross-examination that we can talk more about. But as a person, uh, she does not – I hate to say this, but – You would not look at her on the street and think, that's a cold-blooded killer. That's someone who can shoot their husband in the back with no warning. She looks like a a kindly grandmother out of a fable. Instead, she is someone that has been now proven in a court of law to have... Clearly a a deep capacity for deception, maybe even self-deception, but certainly the lies, the storytelling. She blurred that line between what was in her fiction and the deadly reality that took the life of this beloved chef instructor, Daniel Brophy. And I think that what we learned about her is that she was not very good with money. Um, she was supposed to be management. That was Daniel Brophy's nickname for her, but they were spending way too much just living beyond their means, the little stuff going out to eat too often, spend about $1,000 a year at Starbucks, which you know you could get that for free almost if you, if you brewed your coffee at home. They were missing their mortgage payments, but she was spending $1,000 a month on the life insurance policies, which she then attempted to collect almost immediately after Daniel Brophy died. And that would have brought her in uh, Eight hundred thousand dollars, and if you include the four hundred one k, the uh, workers' comp from an on the job death, I mean, it's easily over a million.
0: As someone who has uh, gone through the process of shopping around for life insurance, now I'm not in my late sixties, <laughs> but um, that's it's a pricey proposition, and that's a that's those are big premiums. Those are big monthly premiums.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't one life insurance policy; it was close to ten. That's. Uh,
0: boggles the mind. But you mentioned some of the deceptions and inconsistencies. What jumped out to you um, in terms of uh, ways that she was deceptive?
1: So, Nancy Crampton Brophy's story is not a prolonged whodunit. The police figured out it was her about a couple hours after they found the body. Um, and the reason is, is that there was surveillance footage that captured her in her car, driving to the Oregon Culinary Institute in the Goose Hollow neighborhood, circling the, the lot several times. You, you don't see exactly where she parks and there was no cameras inside this cooking school. So you don't know what goes on inside, but you see her driving around, you see her parking, and then you see her leaving a few minutes after Dan has deactivated the alarm. So police found some of that footage from the MAX station nearby, as well as uh, some interior store cameras. A camera inside a storefront, if it faces out those glass windows, actually captures a lot of what's on the street. And so they got one from Bellagio's nearby, too. Uh, even the KGW has a, an outward-facing camera. Right. And all of that stuff they had within a few hours. And as Detective uh, Anthony Merrill said on the stand, they were shocked. This was something in their minds that they knew they had to confront because when they gave Nancy the news that she was that her husband was dead, they, they truly considered her a grieving widow. And the story she told them, of course, was, I, I love my husband, what did I do today? Nothing. I, I woke up, my husband went to work, I sat in bed, I didn't even leave the bed, and I just worked on my stories. She didn't didn't tell them a word about driving down to the school and spending uh, quite a bit of time, right, including that she was there at the same time as the murder. And she did not mention that in her interview with detectives the day that Dan died. So that right there was a huge deception. I spoke after the trial concluded with Dan Brophy's mother and his son from a previous marriage. They told me that they were shocked. They had no idea that she was the killer until September 5th, 2018, the day she was arrested. Um, so she was playing it up. She was. She spoke at the vigil. I was there as well. There was mm-hmm. a vigil for Dan Brophy at the Oregon Culinary Institute um, a day or so after his death, and she spoke at that vigil in front of the TV cameras and reporters like myself. So she played up the grieving widow plenty.
0: I didn't know you were there. What was that like? I mean, you know, obviously when we cover things like that, it's an it's an emotional thing, but. Um, you know and you've you've covered lots of funerals um but w- w- what stood out to you if anything from that event
1: it was so evident how uh, loved he was there was dozens and dozens of people there and you know that anytime you go to a public vigil for every one person who who can appear in public there are many people who are grieving privately and can't be in a spot like that especially when there's going to be cameras and things like that so it was it was clear evidently that he was a loved man by a lot in the community. There were uh, a lot of people who spoke. There was a tons of flowers and candles. Nancy Crampton Brophy, she spoke. She she did briefly speak. She didn't mm-hmm. talk for more than a few minutes. And she was being a little bit of cloistered. There were a lot of people there who I, I think were trying to protect her and support her and sort of you know not have her become overwhelmed with the situation. Uh, one thing that came out in trial that I didn't pick up on that night is that she was not someone who cried a lot in public. And what her defense attorneys would say was, well, she was raised in Texas and she is this Southern woman with a stiff upper lip who's afraid to cry in public. But many people noticed that she did not cry about Dan after he died. And she didn't cry. Um, she was somewhat emotional, but she did not break down and sob. She was composed uh, when she was at that vigil.
0: And um, some of the de- her defense, right, was... Uh- that this was maybe retrograde amnesia, right, in terms of, uh, you know, why she didn't recall her her uh, actions and her driving by the facility that morning?
1: Yeah. So that was another one of these uh, little stories that that Nancy uh, likes to come up with. So that she and her defense attorneys, uh, Kristen Weinmiller and Lisa Maxfield, who to their credit, uh, did everything they could uh, to zealously represent their client. They had an explanation for everything. Whether or not it was a believable explanation is another question. The life insurance. Well, she sells life insurance. So that's why she's got to have so much life insurance that she holds personally, because you got to be a good salesperson. You also have to buy the product. Well, then how come you didn't tell police that you went down to the murder scene at the exact same time that the murder was expected that the murder happened? Well, she's According to them and according to some expert witnesses that they hired, she went down there, came back, learned from a friend that there was all this police activity outside the school, texted Dan, called Dan one time each, and somehow knew already that he was dead because of how suspicious it was, or auspicious, I suppose, and therefore suffered this blackout, this memory hole of retrograde amnesia that completely erased her mourning uh, when she went to the culinary school earlier. And the reason she did that, they assumed was because she was simply going there to because it was a good place to jot down notes. She would just go around and drive and park randomly in the Goose Hollow neighborhood and jot down story ideas, which that that's what that was what they came up with. That was their narrative to explain it.
0: Well. As anyone who's tried to park over in that neck of the woods, <laughs> it's hard to park. It's hard to find parking, right? Yeah. Let's take a quick break and then we're going to talk about that kind of remarkable testimony and the verdict and some other takeaways. Um, talking to Zane Sparling, who is a breaking news reporter who covers courts for the Oregonian in Oregon Live. Zane, I'd be remiss in not asking you about, you know, how this infamous essay we talked about earlier factored into or didn't factor into the trial. Can you talk about why that wasn't really on the plate for jurors?
1: Yeah. So this essay, How to Murder Your Husband by Nancy Brophy, uh, you can read it if yourself, if you'd like. We have a link to it in our coverage. But this was an essay she wrote uh, back in 2011. It was essentially a how-to treatise for How to Murder Your Husband, and get away with it. So it discussed the different types of essaying a murder, right? You could poison someone. You could hire a hitman. Uh, she discounted those methods and pointed out hitmen often turn out to be informants. Poison, you have to know the dosage correctly. She decided on murder, in a murder by firearm in this essay. And the essay also professed a very strong desire to not get caught. Nancy Brothy wrote, I don't look good in orange. Um, now, that was the foreshadowing for the actual 2018 murder, which was used with a firearm. And, of course, Nancy Brothy thought she had the perfect alibi. I was at home writing. Couldn't possibly have been me who killed my husband. It didn't turn out that way. Now, Judge uh, Circuit Judge Christopher Romrus, he actually uh, decided that, that essay didn't have enough probative value to be included in the what was seen by the jury, right? The jury, of course, can't read news articles. They can't listen to podcasts about... The trial while it's ongoing. So they didn't know about this essay because the judge ruled that it was inadmissible. He said, it just it's too old. Nobody is making any argument that she was plotting this murder for six years. They think that she was plotting it for months, but maybe a year, but she wasn't plotting it for six years. At least the prosecutors never showed any evidence of that. Maybe if they'd been allowed to submit the essay, people would have uh, thought differently. So that's the short answer. The long answer is the essay came up either way in the cross-examination. <laughs>
0: All right, let's get to that then. I guess we, before we get into the specifics of the testimony, for our listeners, it's pretty unusual, right, for a uh, defendant to take the stand in in a murder trial, right?
1: It is almost never done. I know we've all seen that classic uh, Perry Mason moment where the defendant breaks down under cross-examination and blurts out, you're right, I did it just doesn't work that way in real life. The the number one reason is that you are subject to a lot of probing questions when you are on your cross-examination. Prosecutors spend a lot of time thinking about all the little uh, cracks in your armor, and they were going to exploit each one of them mercilessly. And there are no redos. You do not get a second chance when you are on the stand. And it's very rare for those reasons. It's much easier to... Just and again, Fifth Amendment, right? There is no penalty for just dis- for choosing not to speak in your own defense. The jury is ex- specifically instructed not to consider that as a factor. Um, maybe not in those words, but it's you're not allowed. To, they're certainly, they're not allowed to to call attention to that in their uh, opening or closing arguments.
0: So that kind of table setter aside, um, Nancy Crampton Brophy decided, uh, I'm going to do it. Um, when she was questioned by her own counsel, from your vantage point, what was she trying to? Get across
1: she needed to sell this story that she was a loving wife and that she loved her husband and to be honest if I was a theater critic giving a review of her performance I would say she nailed it clearly it had been rehearsed but she hit all her marks she seemed to know her lines pretty well if you look at it through that lens you would say She did a good job. She was emotional on the stand. She did tear up a bit, describing how much she loved Daniel Brophy. And again, they were together for 25 years, so you have to assume that they really did love each other, at least for part of that relationship. Um, She talked a lot about... She delivered her lines. I I maybe shouldn't say it that way, but she delivered her lines about the retrograde amnesia with a straight face. She uh, sold her story, and there were a, a few moments where... Uh, Lisa Maxfeld would have to, uh, sort of rein her in and, and she'd say rabbit hole, rabbit hole. You're falling down a rabbit hole because she had a lot of long discursive, uh, tangents in her stories. Uh, maybe a bit like this, uh, podcast performance that I'm giving, but no, no, (laughs) (laughs) she did fine.
0: So, um, that leads to, you know, you, you brought up the fact that the essay came up. How did the prosecution do it? Um, or did they have to do much prying? I guess to to um, kind of get that um, content from 2011. Um, you know, the subject of of your lead and uh, the headlines across the country. Um, h- how exactly did they get that uh, little nugget? Uh, yeah, to come out.
1: So. Multnomah County Senior Deputy District Attorney Sean Overstreet. I believe he's a former police officer. Uh, he's a he's a prosecutor now. He was leading this cross examination. It went on for three hours. It was brutal in every sense of the word. The tension in the room was crackling. You could you could feel that palpable sense of of just the the microscope or the just. Getting her into a smaller and smaller box, um, and Crampton Brophy did her own was her own worst enemy because not only did she specifically tell her lawyers, "I want to take the stand," she did not stop herself from rambling and going on and on on questions where she could have said yes or no and and kept her mouth shut to her own benefit. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this essay was never discussed during opening statements, by any of the witnesses. And what uh, Sean Overstreet did is he started to essentially just allude to the essay right at the end of his cross. He he would almost quote it word for word, but he wouldn't say this is from an essay. So he would say to Nancy Brophy, isn't there one thing you agree that anyone is capable of murder? And Nancy could have said, no, I don't agree with that. Not everyone's capable of murder. That's what she wrote in the essay is that everyone's capable. But The jury doesn't know that. She could have simply said, nope, disagree, next question. Instead, she gave this rambling, uh, five-minute uninterrupted siloquy where uh, she basically just said the word murder as many times as possible. She said, yes, I agree that anyone's capable of murder. Here are all the different motives for murder. Uh, There's a lot of different ways why you could do murder, including for money. She basically just said the word murder for five minutes straight, and then Sean Overstreet said, no further questions. And we went to lunch.
0: One of our colleagues, uh, who was in the courtroom with you as well, Dave Killen. You know, he, he's not easily surprised or shocked. But everything I heard from from him and from reading your story was this was truly kind of a breathtaking performance, for lack of a better you know descriptor.
1: Yeah, it it, it was breathtaking, and I I should we should make the caveat that these are real people, and these stories that were being told had deadly consequences. Uh, for us in the audience, many of us were journalists, were observers. We're trying to be our best, of course, to just follow this neutrally. It's impossible not to have reactions that you can now share that with the jury being having had that conviction yeah. uh, in the books. But for a lot of people in the audience, this is not a performance. It's real life. And it's their loved one who's on stand. There was members of her family, Nancy's family, who are in the audience every single day. They were emotionally struck by the the guilty verdict. There were members of Dan's family, his his mother and son, who were there every single day uh, sitting behind the prosecutor's table. I know when they came out of the courtroom, I said, how do you feel, uh, Mrs. Brophy, Karen Brophy, the mother? And she said, just thrilled. Wonderful, wonderful. I mean, it was for them a vindication. It was finally the closure they needed. It It brought this. Four-year-long ordeal, again, June 2nd, 2018, that's almost four years now, brought it to a close. And for them, it was never a theater stage that they were watching. It was their own lives, you know, displayed for the public. And unfortunately, that's what has to happen to bring justice.
0: You just mentioned the verdict, obviously, and and kind of your takeaways from being there. But when you think back on this trial and on Dan Brophy, what's going to stick with you?
1: I think what's going to stick with me is... Seeing Nancy Brophy on the stand, uh, really at times, you know, she knew who was in the audience. I made eye contact with her for times. I I think that it's hard to hear someone talk about something and really claim their innocence, and then hear the other side go and kind of lay out all the puzzle pieces explaining why someone isn't innocent. The jury, of course, convicting Nancy Crampton-Brophy but there's always that little worm of doubt because she maintains our innocence to this day and the justice system has decided the truth. But as humans, we always have that tiny little bit of uncertainty. Now it's not a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. She was convicted beyond a reasonable doubt, but there are unreasonable doubts. And there is always that unknowable aspect to anything you haven't personally seen or done with your own hands. And, We will never know because there were no cameras in that room and we do not know exactly what happened in those final minutes of Dan Brophy's life.
0: You know, obviously you're reporting over the last many years, you've had a first person experience covering, you know, really important stories in this community. And, um, you continue to do that, you know, every day, every week. Um, and we've had so many homicides in the last two years. I mean, I'm just wondering how you kind of fit this into that, um, you know, this is a, a trial that's salacious and but like they're real people as well. But then you look at the scale of gun violence in the community and it's so much broader, right?
1: It is. And it's worth noting that during those uh eight weeks when this trial was happening, not every day, they did about four days a week. They had a, a gap when, when someone was exposed and, and sickened with COVID. But during this time period, after the trial began, two other murder trials started up also in Multnomah County Circuit Court, and they concluded before the Brophy case did. And they got very little coverage. I know here at the Oregonian Oregon Live, we're trying to tell the story of, of every single person who loses their life uh, from gun violence. We're trying to, to keep a, a really steady focus on the criminal justice system and, and ensure there's accountability for everyone, the, the victims, the the people who are convicted, the families and the community. But it's it's really shocking how much the, the breadth of, the fatal crimes are not talking about everything else, but just the crimes where someone loses their life. Um, there's really, there's too much for me to do all by myself. I, I think there's too much for the community to even want to know sometimes just just how many stories are unfolding. And the Crampton Brophy case uh, was an important one to focus on, not only because it, it did, it went to trial most of these murder cases are being resolved with plea deals where the person accepts uh, their their guilt and they they get a reduced sentence because right, of that. right. Um, it was important to follow for that reason. It was the first murder trial. It's been a, uh, a a look, a set piece for the 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 how slowly the wheels of justice have turned for multiple years uh, during the pandemic. And it was a case where we wanted to find out who did it. just like a murder mystery. We didn't know until we got that verdict and and now we do.
0: Well, thanks so much for all of your coverage on this really fascinating case and for taking time to talk about it. Appreciate it.
1: Hey, thank you, Andrew.
0: Thanks for listening to Beat Check with you, Oregonian. I shared links to some of Zane's trial coverage in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find this show. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at oregonlive.com/podsupport. Until next time.